0: The question that we're asking this week is this Is there a hope in a violent world? Is there hope in a violent world? That's very relevant, isn't it, in the world that we live in today. Um, I want to just start by taking one minute of your time uh, and just showing you a video, an interesting video. It's an advert not paid by NatWest, but it's an advert. I just found it very interesting when I saw it the other day. The Apostle Paul is speaking uh, to a group of people uh, in Athens on Mars Hill uh, and he makes a comment to them which is as um, relevant today as it was a couple of thousand years ago and it's this, that even your poets speak words which speak truth into the situation. He picks up on what their poets have said. I find it fascinating that an advert picks up on massive issues, really huge issues. I think it's also incredibly pretentious of a bank to think that it has in some way the answer to the paradox of our human existence And yet at the same time, that advert is incredibly powerful, isn't it? I think it speaks in a way which just touches this sense of evil in the world, and yet the paradox with which we live in it, that we are both victims and perpetrators. We are both. It's interesting that there is a sense of Humanity that gathers up that together in that advert. It's saying, This is what we are. We are all of these things. Uh, We look into a wider world and we see that this paradox is played out again and again and again. There is our deep seated sense of injustice and wrong when we see some of the things that go on in the world. We rage. Against some of those things, and yet at the same time, we are also uh, we contribute to that as well. We we rage when we ought not to rage. Not least when we're behind the wheel of a car, <laughs> and yet there's something about our collective that we are all part of this paradox of our human existence. When we look at the human. Uh, journey. We also recognize, I want to suggest this, historians have argued, are arguing about this. Many have claimed, and I think it's just a bit of an off-the-cuff claim, um, some would say it's true, some would say it's not true, that the 20th century was the most violent century in all of history. Now, there's some historians who have disputed that. They've said, actually, that's not the case. In a way, it doesn't matter whether it was the most violent or not the most violent. The fact that it is still possible that it might be the most violent tells us something very, very interesting, that for all of the progress of the human race, all of the seeming steps forward, all of the journey of hope, we paradoxically are also unable incapable of resolving the issues of violence in the world. We are unable to resolve the problems of the human condition. Isn't that fascinating that those two things go hand in hand? I, I, I have a sneaking suspicion, and I'm no historian, but I have a sneaking suspicion that one of the reasons that we talk about the 20th century as being the most violent is because the general world population has grown at such a rate that if you look at the number of people who have been killed in the century through violence, then you could possibly say in numbers terms. And yet there are other periods of history which have been relatively as destructive. Uh, So that's just an interesting kind of perspective. I think it tells us, though that for all of our desires, of all of our aspirations, for all of the good and great humanitarian good that is going on, there is also ultimately failure. All of the developments in technology also have brought massive challenges. If you're a fan of the Big Bang Theory there was a great episode where they were debating whether to carry on with their GPS program. Uh, And they were worrying about whether they should carry on with the GPS program because it suddenly dawned uh, on these brilliant scientists that it could be used for military uh, use. And that actually, in a joking way, just plays into our reality as human beings. We are both we live in an unresolvable violent world I think it's maybe at the beginning it's it's really helpful to just be really upfront about that and to say this is where we are I'm just going to pause for a minute see if there's anything uh, that's come up on the questions there's a bit of a nod from the back so let's see uh, where we go that's a really great question Why does God let innocent people suffer? That is such an important question in one sense, isn't it? I'll be be straight up. On the one hand, I don't think I can answer that. (laughs) On the other hand, that particular question is right at the very heart of what we want to do next week. So I am going to come back to that because it really is um, an important issue. But it, it does speak, asking that question at the same time does speak into our sense of there should, there, there should be something that's right and we live in a world that is wrong. One of the things that I find interesting about the Nat West advert, and I think it plays a little bit into this, that there is a bit of a human tendency... For all of the good things that we do, we say, Haven't we done well? <laughs> and for all of the bad things that happen, we have a tendency to say, And why doesn't God resolve that? Maybe what that advert at least causes us to do is just pause and say, Maybe, maybe we have both of our hands on those issues, the positive and the negative. Uh, And we need to face up to that. So that is a great question. It really is important. It's the heart of the series in lots of ways. And we're going to come back to that next week. So maybe one more. Does there need to be suffering in the world? We kind of covered this a little bit last week. On the one hand, does there need to be suffering? There's something that tells us that the world that we live in shouldn't have suffering. I love that. I love that written into us, and I believe that this is because we are made in God's image. We are made with a a dignity and a, a grandeur and a majesty which is above the suffering of this world. That's what we are made as. We know that there should be something more. At the same time, the fact that suffering exists can do one of two things. It can point us away from God because we get angry, we rage, and we turn away. Or it can also say, isn't there something better to look to outside of this? I hope that's part of the journey that we go on this afternoon, that part of this question, does there need to be suffering? We are definitely going to come to that question next week, because really this week and next week are connected, so we will come back to that. Guys at the back, can we just make a note to make sure that we tick those past two questions, because we're going to cover them uh, as we go through next week. So, we'll carry on. History tells us that we are unable to resolve the problems of the human condition. Now, let's go on a little bit of a journey. Week one, we ask the question, is God real? In the light of this issue that we face today, is there hope in a violent world? I just want to suggest to you this. Just imagine for a moment that God is not real. What history tells us is that all of our attempts to resolve the problems of the world are ultimately, they seem to be futile. If there isn't a God, if there isn't anything outside of us, then we truly, we truly are without hope. The question is, Is the God that is outside of us a God who cares? That's one of the issues that we face. Is God real? Last week we looked at... The first week we looked at the claim in uh, Mark chapter 1 verse 1 which said the beginning of the good news. It's good news about Jesus. We we mentioned it in week 1. We'll mention it again. Good news... Uh, it's a word that was used uh, in the ancient world. It was a word, word, gospel, and the word gospel meant good news. The gospel, as understood in the ancient world at the time of Jesus, was the good news of being taken over by the Roman Empire. That was good news, because to be taken over by the Roman Empire was talked about in terms of coming under a new authority, coming under a new control, entering into the brave new world, the liberation of now belonging to Rome. That was described in the ancient world as gospel. And the New Testament writers, as guided by the Holy Spirit, saw the power of that. The real good news is not the coming of Rome. The real good news is the coming of Jesus. And what Mark says right at the beginning is that good news, the coming of Jesus, is the promise that Jesus is the one who has been spoken about over a few thousand years in the Old Testament, preparing for His presence. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the one promised. And He's the Son of God. He says, The historical events of the life of Jesus, as we saw last week, can I believe in miracles? The historical events of the life of Jesus tell us that supernaturality has entered into the natural world. What does that mean? It means that something outside of what is just normal, as far as we understand it as humans, has broken into our world and has shown us that there is something more. And that is no less, according to Mark, than God Himself present with us. And we left last week, I think, by asking the question, well, that's great, but why? (laughs) Why would Jesus do that? Why would God do that? Why would God come into this world The reality is that that is absolutely rooted in the question of this week. Is there hope in a violent world? We're going to take a a few minutes and we're going to look at a a very short incident in the life of Jesus. Let's read it together. Mark chapter 2 and verse 13 to 17. It's very short. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Little event in the life of Jesus few things to just note in it. Firstly, we notice that Mark writes this as something that happened. I, I, I love that about the message of the Bible. It's not just some sort of highfalutin set of philosophical ideas. It's about the life of a man and the way he taught and the things that he did while he was here. So, when we read this, and we know that the book was written a relatively short period of time after these events took place, uh, many of the people who actually feature in this little cameo actually were still alive. So, they would have been able to say, do you know what, that is just, that's just how it happened. It was an event. There are, if you like, there are three characters, we'll... um, We'll term them Jesus as a character, the good and the bad. What do we see? We see Jesus as the central character in this little story. He's teaching, uh, and as he's teaching, he engages with a man called Levi. His name is Matthew. goes on to be Matthew, the tax collector who writes the first, go- first gospel the Gospel of Matthew, in the the order in which our our Bibles gather them together. He's a tax collector uh, and he's caught up with Jesus as he's teaching. There is a significant crowd of people following him. Again, once again, we see Jesus uh, as an engaging teacher, um, very visible, doing things in public, Matthew is caught up with this, and Jesus goes and eats with him. Earlier on in the year, I was um, able to go to Israel, and uh, one of the things that really struck me when I spoke to our tour guide was the significance of sitting down and eating with somebody. Sitting and eating with somebody is profoundly important in the Jewish community. Certainly, at this time, it signified friendship and relationship. You didn't eat with somebody if they weren't a friend. You just didn't do it. It was not the done thing. Uh, And here we see Jesus sat down and eating with the bad. We see he's the description is that he sat down with tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors in the ancient world, in the Roman world, were used by Rome to gather taxes. There's a phrase um, that was bandied about, all roads lead to Rome, uh, which was an idea that Rome was at the center, but there was a sort of cynical twist to that phrase as well, "All all roads lead to Rome, and it's this, all of the goods all of the wealth, all of the property, all of the riches, all end up at Rome. In other words, it was all being sucked out of the empire and tax collectors were behind the task of getting all riches to end up at Rome. They were not considered good people. If anybody works for... Um, her Majesty's Inspector of Taxes, or whatever it's called now, um, what I'm about to say does not apply to you, Right? Tax collectors today are great people, but not in the ancient world. Tax collectors were extortioners. Tax collectors were really, I guess, traitors in the eyes of people, Tax collectors had the liberty to take whatever they decided for themselves as, if you like, a margin. So they became, really, I guess you would say they were the enforcers. There are historical accounts of tax collectors who were essentially, they were gangsters, and they would often have been violent men. Maybe that typical violent rich person who was hidden behind layers and layers. They might look appropriate, uh, but they get their, their guys to do the dirty work. So when we see Jesus engaging with that group of people, we see a fascinating thing, don't we? We see just a ridiculous contrast What we also see, and it's used with careful language, we see that Jesus is meeting, and the the religious uh, teachers say this, what is He doing meeting with tax collectors and sinners? What were the sinners? Many of the commentators agree that it was most likely that the sinners were prostitutes alongside the tax collectors because the worlds kind of go together. When you're living below the radar or above the radar of the law, whichever you decide, there is a kind of, there is a a, a thick as thieves kind of idea. It continues into our day today, doesn't it? They go together. Uh, And so what we see is Jesus sat down with the most disreputable of society. The people that nobody wanted to have anything to do with in fact you could say on a very low scale and a very sort of um, very regionalized or localized uh, way you would say that he is he is there spending time with the violent those who were involved in engaged in prostitution in a shame culture were very much as they continue to be today the people who were used by the powerful who got themselves into a situation and were they were in an impossible situation nothing has changed in the world and yet what we see is Jesus making this huge statement of sitting down and eating and drinking with just those people there's the bad on the other hand we see the good and the good those who are upright, those who are moral, those who know the religious law, the teachers of the law no less, the Pharisees, the people who would know exactly how to behave, exactly how to be, the people that everybody would look around and say, that's what being good looks like, that's what being right looks like those people over there. In fact, they are so good and they are so right that they actually teach about how to be good and how to be right. They are the Pharisees. So, here's our three characters, Jesus, the good, and the bad. And it's pretty obvious, isn't it? And yet, Jesus turns it around with a radical statement. Look at verse 17. Jesus hears what the Pharisees have been saying. Why does he sit and eat? Why does he make friends? Why does he make the statement that his friends are the tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. Sarcasm, biting sarcasm, is one of the most powerful statements, political statements, social statements that a society can see made. It happens in our our world today. Those biting satirical statements Which actually are said in such a way that turns over, turns upside down what people think. That is exactly what Jesus is doing at this moment in time. I've come for the sick. The righteous don't need me. (laughs) What's he saying? He's actually saying this. And he's actually making a huge statement. He is saying why it is that He's come. You see what He says? I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's why I've come. I've come to call sinners, is what He says. Who are the sinners? Mark is creating, if you like, in chapter 2, a foundation that he builds on for the rest of the book, and from this statement, he turns the religious thinking upside down, and he reverses the notion of the good and the bad. What we think is the good are all those religious leaders, and the bad are all of those people over there. What he says in the words of Jesus is, I've really come for those who what? who know that they're bad. That's who I've come for. I've come for those who know that they need me. You know, the, the righteous, if you want to take the biting sarcasm, the righteous don't need me. <laughs> it's the bad that need me. It's the sinners that need me. And yet, paradoxically, If you think about what Mark has said in verse 1 of chapter 1, God has come into the world (coughs) and God makes friends with the tax collectors and sinners who come to Him. What does it say? It says that our relationship with God in a violent world, in a world which is violent, is actually fundamentally shaped by understanding that we are all contributors to the problem. It's not those over there that are bad. That was, the, that was the religious elite problem. They're the bad over there. We're the good over here. And they didn't realize that actually, relatively speaking, we are all victims and perpetrators and we all need this one who has come to call us. That's the message with biting sarcasm, with a role reversal that Jesus makes in that statement. I'm just going to see if we've got any more questions. Is violence from human origin or is there something deeper going on? Is it from human origin or is there something deeper going on? That is a great question, and to be honest, that question could last the rest of this evening, because it's that fantastic. We live as paradoxical beings. There is something inside of us that knows that there is right and knows that there is good, and yet even we can't be consistent with what is good. There's a point later where I think this paradox and what is going on to answer that question is played out in the most dramatic scene. One of the disciples of Jesus was a man named Peter. And Peter was the kind of guy who was in with two feet, he was just straight in there, he led with his mouth rather than his brain, and he said lots of things really confidently and positively, and there was a point at which he says to Jesus, there is no way, effectively I'll paraphrase it, you are not going to, to Jerusalem to die on a cross. And Jesus turns around to Peter, and he says this, get behind me, Satan. That is the most bizarre paradox I think we could ever imagine. Get behind me, Satan, he says to his friend, Peter. I think that speaks into this question. Is violence from human origin or is there something deeper going on? I think it speaks about the fact that even Peter, one who wanted to be such a faithful follower of Jesus, was unable in his own human nature, not to be shaped by evil powers outside of his control. And at the same time, he was also trying to do stuff that he should never have wanted to do. We're going to come back to that as we go along, but I think yes. Is there an origin? Doesn't in one sense, according to the whole storyline of the Bible, it doesn't start with us. It starts outside of us, but it continues through us. I think that's the key message. So, we can't just sit back and say, I'm just a victim to this bad stuff that's out there. I am also At the same time, just like our video, I am also a perpetrator. I continue to be part of the problem. And I actually, at times, find myself helpless. Paul says this in one of his letters to the church at Rome. He says that a point at which I realize there's nothing I can do. I'm helpless. (laughs) Who will help me? Who will save me? He says, thanks be to God. So, maybe one more, very quickly. How, that's the longest question that we've had. Say so very quickly, that's a guarantee. How do we forgive those who are actively joining in with the violence and killing innocent civilians and leaving thousands of children without families and homes? How do we forgive those who are actively joining in with that violence? That, that is a really hard question. I think my first response is this. There is a sense in which we should always rage against that kind of violence. We should always rage against that kind of violence. We should always hate that kind of injustice. And suffering on innocence. But ultimately, who is the ultimate bringer of forgiveness? It's not us, although we contribute and we can play a part in it. But the only one who ultimately can bring forgiveness is God Himself. This we are definitely going to see next week. How can that work? How can God do that? Is the question. So part of me would say that if somebody has been involved in that kind of atrocity and there is repentance and there is a desire for a turnaround in life, I would say I'll spend eternity in peace with that person. But I can't wipe the slate clean in my mind. All I can do is say, well, forgiveness is the Lord's to give and it is not ultimately mine. And I think I have to live with that problem. I think I have to live with the inability for me to be as just in my response as God is just. And yet we know, don't we? Let's take it, let's move it down from those horrific events. We know on an interpersonal level that actually our ultimate peace comes when we truly forgive those who have hurt us. Our ultimate peace can truly come when true forgiveness is worked out. So there is something incredibly redeeming about forgiveness, which is part of the complexity of questions like that. Let's carry on. Where do we go? This is just a bit of a summary, really. Where do we go? Well, firstly... What Mark is saying, is there hope in a violent world? He's saying this (laughs) God has come into the world. That straight away answers the question is God distant? Is God uninterested? Doesn't he care? Is he unable to do anything? All of those questions that we ask, we straight away say, well, God is not distant, he's present. He has actually come into the world and he says, I have come to do something, not to just observe it. Secondly, Mark says that this is good news. Why is this good news? Why is it good news that Jesus has come for sinners? Because our first video tells me that as much as I want to associate myself with all of the good things all of the good sides of the coin, the reality is I know that I can't associate associate myself continually with the good sides. There are parts where I associate myself with the bad sides and I say I am in that camp therefore of needing to be saved. I need somebody who's come to call sinners. That's why it's good news. And he's come, therefore, because of the problem, not in spite of the problem. Sometimes we get that bit confused. Why did Jesus come? He's come precisely because of the problem. That's why it's good news. And finally, is there hope? The source of hope, hopefully we've come to see this evening, the source of hope is not from inside of us, but from outside of us. For all that I want to do all of the right things, I know that ultimately I can't. I don't need fixing, I actually need saving. We are, I think, as a human race, ultimately hopeless and helpless. For all the good that we try to do, and without a doubt there is an amazing amount of incredible good being done and that is fantastic and we love that and we applaud it at the same time it does not resolve the issues does it the paradox of our opening advert and yet in this violent world Mark is saying the coming of Jesus is good news next week the question that we're going to exist, that we're going to ask is this, and I think it plays into one of the questions earlier, and really springboards onto this. If violence is one side of it, the things that people do, if God exists, why is there all the suffering in the world? That's next week. So we'll close with maybe just one question, um, given the time that we've got, uh, and then we'll we'll just close. So, the final question that we'll get up there. So, as Christians, maybe, maybe you are asking that of Christians. Maybe you wouldn't say you are a Christian tonight, so you can, you can relate to this question on one side or the other. So, as Christians, if violence is inevitable, should we be peacekeepers or truth pointers? That is, that is a great question. Should we be peacekeepers or truth pointers? I think my first response to that is that we can't be peacekeepers without being truth pointers. I I actually think that a blind peacekeeping is no help at all. I I want you to think about the, the abomination of people trafficking in this world today. To be a peacekeeper is not to say, let's pretend that that doesn't happen and let's be kind and good. To be a peacekeeper is actually to point to the problem, but then not to say, and that's all those bad people over there, but to say, now what what can we do to bring peace? So there's a difference between, maybe that's as I kind of work through this question in my mind, Maybe the issue is that we don't want to be peace keepers. We want to be peace bringers. We want to bring the hope of peace into the world in which we live. And I don't think we can do that without also being truth pointers. They go hand in hand. Truth pointing sounds very judgmental. But peacekeeping sounds very blinkered. If we do the job of being truth recognizers and peace bringers, what a transformed world we then live in. Is Jesus like that? We'll think about that over these next few weeks. Let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for the wisdom. And the incredible majesty that we see in Jesus in the way that he engaged with people and had his eye towards the oppressed and hated pharisaical religiousism. And yet he loved those who were in need, who turned to him. We thank you that when we look at ourselves, we know that we need his help, and so we pray that you would speak kindly to us through your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen.